Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova. Uh, hi, I'm Mats Wilander. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. In a rather quiet week for tennis, I know that there is tennis going on around the world, but compared to what's been going on the past few weeks with Wimbledon and French Open and Queens and everything, it's relatively quiet. So we thought this might be a good opportunity to tell the Roger Federer story through the eyes of... David Law. Now, I know you can't move at the moment for tributes to Roger Federer, but we like to think that this won't be just another kissing tribute to Roger Federer, (laughs) because there are a lot of those around at the moment, because I know you've been sort of reluctant to do Roger Federer name dropping over the years, and I've been trying to encourage you to, David, because you do have a very unique insight into the story of Roger Federer, particularly the early days, which are so long ago now. He's been going for so long that lots of people don't even recall them secondhand, let alone firsthand, the way you do. Well, and and it takes me a bit of um, prompting in order to remember what he was like back then. And that's, that's one of the reasons we're doing this, really. But I do remember the first time I ever met him. Uh, I was in Gestad in Switzerland. It was my first year as an ATP communications manager. I wasn't particularly old myself, hard to believe, but that was the case. Um, he was just as tall, though. I was just as tall. Didn't have any grey hair yet. Uh, that's happened since. Um, but I remember being at this tournament and, and hearing about this young lad who'd won singles and doubles in the, the Wimbledon boys and that he was Swiss, that he was coming to Gestad to make his professional debut and there was quite a commotion about the fact that he had achieved this at Wimbledon. And my job was going to be to to meet him for the first time and introduce him to how it all works. That was the idea, was that me as communications manager, I would sit him down, I'd do a Q&A with him for the sort of media guide that we had, that we gave to all the media that has the alphabetised players, A to Z. He's all still in, in that media guide. It's just been a bit updated just since ex- the David Law edition. It's expanded a bit. <laughs> and uh, so I would do that. 
and I would tell him about the tour and I'd explain to him who I was, I why there was a communications manager and I'd explain to him. And that was his first tour event. So you were sort of his first contact with the ATP World Tour. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there was a tour manager as well. It was, it'd be somebody like Giorgio Di Palermo, who's who's now on, who's been on the board for many yeah, years. Yeah, but he doesn't have a podcast, so. Well, there we go. <laughs> he yeah, doesn't get but, to tell his story. No, he doesn't. But yeah, effectively, I would have been one of the first couple of people that introduced him to tour life, effectively. Um, and I remember him arriving, and the, like I said, there was a commotion. There was a, there was a, a lot of people there to, to meet him. There was a press conference organised for his arrival, um, and he had not experienced anything like this before. He'd never had a press conference before in his life. He thought it was hilarious. and he I, Was he comfortable with it? Oh, yeah. He was completely comfortable with it from the word go. He, was he, he wasn't awkward or sort of No, he was just amused. About it. He was just... amused by all of it. And I remember the first time I clapped eyes on him, I remember him walking into the Swiss Open press room and he was tall, skinny. It was pre-ponytail. He had sh- sort of curly brown hair and he walked in with this toothless grin the one that we've become very sort of familiar with, but one that was just, this is funny. You know, this is all very amusing to, to him as a 16-year-old. Did he, all have, this did he have an agent or a manager nah. or he had no one? Nothing was, like that. Wow. Nothing like that. Not to my memory anyway. I remember him... Because these days, a 16-year-old junior champion of Wimbledon, they'd probably have about four agents yeah. with them. I mean, he probably did, but I certainly didn't come across one at all that week. And uh, I remember introducing myself and saying who I was and and he and, and I so I said hi I'm David Law from the ATP and he goes I'm Roger and uh, and, he, and he, he was just he was just amused that I was sort of treating him almost like a semi-adult for a start I think he just found that quite funny in itself um, and uh, and I sat him down to explain him to him that we were going to have a press conference and, and what it would be like and so forth and that I needed to find some information about him to give to all the media. So can we sit down and do a bit of a Q&A? So I got my little Q&A sheet out and it had all sorts of categories on, many of which just didn't apply to him, like married. Was this long enough ago that you were writing it by hand? Yes, I was writing it by hand. Yeah, it was, wow. it, it was, uh, Did you have a typewriter? No, I didn't have a typewriter. <laughs> It's not that should, long ago. If only Catherine. you'd kept the original piece of paper. Can yes. you imagine? That could be on eBay now. I do. I do remember that. I was too. I was like the sort of embarrassing dad trying to make jokes, and uh, <laughs> so I was sitting down, and uh, and and when we got to sort of married, he just laughed, and then I just wrote too busy playing playstation <laughs> and uh, then you know children again. He found that hilarious, um, but immediately it was clear this this. I, I used to describe him as he, he was cocky, but in a nice way. Uh, there was no side to him that was unpleasant. I, I, I mean, I know it's boring to keep saying it. Everybody says, oh, I love Roger Federer and all this. I always liked him right from that very first day because I just thought he's fun and he's, he's a good lad. You know, he's switched on too. He's interested. He's curious. I loved his curiosity and he's, he's kept that to this day. He, you know, even in that... In, uh, situation at the Australian Open where where I had a little chat with him before he played his first round match he's still asking questions about you you know and you're thinking that's that's quite something really that's well, unusual which I've spoken about sort of 
being really rare in tennis players, even the nice ones, you know, they're so in a bubble. They really are. Even the nice ones that, you know, you sort of think you're, you're borderline friends with them and then you get to an end of a really long conversation and realise you've only spoken about them and they don't actually know anything about your life. And it, it I, I know it, it, it sounds pathetic to sort of be giving him credit for something that normal human beings, you just take it for granted. But it is quite a big deal in the tennis world, let alone in the stratosphere that he's in for him to to be be asking you questions like yeah. that about and, uh, you and to, to, made, to genuinely care. It sort of made sense back then and it's how it should be, in my view, is he's the kid, I'm the one who knows about this stuff, you listen to me, son, is is my how I always viewed that sort of conversation. And the nice thing about him is he was he was up for that. And, and actually, that generation back then, it wasn't that prevalent. I mean, we're used to now players following in the footsteps of Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and Andy Murray and trying to be good with the media, trying to understand that they that they need to worry about how they behave. This was the era of Marcelo Rios, Yevgeny <laughs> Kofelnikov, rather more difficult human beings. And he was a breath of fresh air in that way. The thing was, you don't know when they're 16 whether they're actually going to make it. I mean, he, he played his first round match against an Argentine player called Lucas Arnold. They didn't put him on centre, they put him on court number one. And I didn't, I remember thinking, I must go and have a look at this kid, see if he's actually any good, right? Roger Federer. And, um, so you hadn't seen him play at I'd that I'd never point. seen him play. And I thought, well, I, you know, and I got busy and I didn't really get around to it. And then in the final game of the match, I went out and just tried to get a look around the corner at him. And there was a huge crowd. And I saw maybe just a couple of points from behind as he lost. And, uh, and then just this despondent-looking figure coming off the court. But, you know, he, he, he was the sort of player you pull for as somebody who works in the media or behind the scenes because... You know that if he could make it big as a player, if he would be good enough, people would love him. You knew that then? That was so clear to me that this guy, it wasn't star quality because he wasn't, he wasn't sort of, there was nothing fake about him. He was just likable, just likable. And and I thought if he's, if he was as good as, as, you know, one of the greats or something, you know, he could really resonate because he's just likable. How could you not? He's resonated a bit over the years. He's I'd done say. all right with that. He's done all right. But actually, um, star wise, the first time I actually saw him play and think, my word, this we've got something here. A few months later, he played the, he got a tournament wild card in Basel in his home tournament, and he, he drew Andre Agassi in the first round. He's 16, 17 at the time. And he, I think he lost 6 3, 6 2. But it was like watching Pete Sampras. That's how it felt. You you were watching this incredible mover. He dressed the same as Sampras. It was a, it was a, it, it felt a bit copycat almost in the, at the time because he still so he had, had the short Nike hair. he had his Nike deal by then. Though. Yeah, he did, and he had the same racket and and he had the same fluidity across the court. And he's playing Agassi, so you've got this style. And it was it was really exciting to 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 see how good he was. He hit some spellbinding winners. And, and lost in straight sets. And afterwards, we asked Agassi, who'd played both Federer and Ivo Hoiberger, another young Swiss player, slightly older, but again, somebody being talked about, which one is going to be the better player? And, Fe- and Agassi said, well, if they played now, Hoiberger would get the win, but is going to have the career. Well, that was a good prediction. Yeah, he did quite Whereas, well with that. Whereas, if anybody knows where Evo Hoiberger is now, answers on a postcard, please. Lovely bloke, though, Evo. <laughs> I don't doubt it for a second. But you said... You just don't know, no matter how talented 
Somebody is, and there's plenty of other examples we could cite of this, but won't on the Roger Federer special. Um, you don't, you still, you just don't know whether or not they're going to make it. There no. are so many extraneous factors, and there were a couple of years there where doubts crept well, in for followed, those around him. What followed? I mean, my, my ATP Communications manager days ranged from 1998 to the end of 2001, and he had not won a Grand Slam in that period at all. Now I was chief cheerleader i mean he was european for a start so he was in my kind of neck of the woods i was based in monte carlo and i saw a lot of him and was always you know trying to tip people off tell journalists you want to watch this kid he's he is extraordinarily talented and time after time i know you might think oh yeah of course you'd say that that's what happened and the truth is Week after week, I would make a complete fool of myself because I remember I remember calling journalists up at the start of the Australian Open, I think in 2002, something like that, or maybe even before, actually before that. And, and, and I was saying, you want to watch out for this kid. You know, he's really going to be something. This was before the Sampras win. And, uh, and people would, ju- would just, you know, yeah, OK, well, we'll see, won't we? Because they've, they've heard it all before, you know? And... My feeling was that eventually it will come good. But the number of times we would go to tournaments and he would throw in a substandard performance or he would mentally break down or he would get emotional, he'd throw his rackets and he'd, he, was a, he was a baby. Honestly, he was a crybaby on the court. He was, he was always sort of mentally breaking down emotionally and, and not being able to finish the job. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. He was just immature, and it took him a while. He wasn't Becker. He wasn't Nadal. He wasn't winning 16, 17, 18 years of age those big matches. He, he was losing matches he should have won. It took him a time to grow up. I mean... Listen to this from former Swiss number one Mark Rosset. I remember, you know, first time I practiced with him. He was in Geneva, and he was uh, the the new talented guy, you know, in Switzerland. And uh, but he was so lazy. <laughs> and you know, usually when you practice with a guy who's on the tour, you know, you're young guys, you know, you want you're a little bit stressed. You want to 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 play good, you know. You you you're very nervous. And the guy came on the court like he he didn't care at all. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> The, the, the first time I, I played, it was final in the in the tour event in Marseille, and uh, I won seven six in the third. And I remember it was his first final ever, and he was crying. He was crying, and he was crying at the at the ceremony. And uh, I was like, "Come on, don't cry." So yeah, but you know, maybe it's my first final, and uh, maybe I won't play another final again in my life. And I lost it. So I say, "Relax. For sure, you're gonna play other final. For sure, you're gonna win tournaments." But I could never imagine that he would have won, you know, 17 Grand Slam. Well, my first experience, certainly that I remember of watching Roger Federer on the telly, was 2001 Wimbledon. That Sampras win, his announcement of himself onto the world stage and subsequently losing to Tim Henman in uh, the quarterfinals, I think it was. Is that right? Or did he, he beat Sampras fourth round and then to lost to Henman in Henman the quarterfinals? The quarters, yeah. And then Henman went on to lose the semi-finals and then he arrived at Wimbledon the following year 2002 he'd lost first round of the French John McEnroe had tipped him to win that tournament and this was my first ever centre court experience I'd queued overnight that photo of me doing so is now lurking on the internet thanks to my friend Grace who I'm not speaking to at the moment Uh, and I was front row for Roger Federer the soon to be great Roger Federer that John McEnroe and others had tipped for the Wimbledon title taking on Mario Ancic and he lost in straight sets in the first round and he departed the court and I thought 
oh, there goes Roger Federer, the perhaps not to be great and, Roger uh, Federer, and a lot of people thought the same. And for quite a long time, it was the Mario Ancic type of player that caused him problems. Somebody who rushed him, chipped, charged, came at him. Tim Henman had a fantastic record against him in the first half a dozen matches that they played. He could not handle that style. He was all flourishes and beautiful trick shots, but there was no identity to his game. He would rather he wanted to just stand there and show how show his talent. And I remember him playing in 2000 in St. Polten in, in Austria. He played a guy called Marcus Hanschk of Germany, and I I, 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 just, I like. With every time Federer played a tournament I was at, I would try and go and watch him because I was still kind of, I know you shouldn't, but I was slightly cheerleading because I just thought this guy could be a star. And I went out to watch this match on clay. He's 6-3, 4-1 down. And uh, and I went out to see it and, uh, and he's, you know, he's he's playing terribly, really. I mean, he's just it's just a, a wet damp clay court day in austria horrible weather and he's just he's just getting pummeled and behind next to me was was the the dutch player sheng shaokin and we're watching this and, and this is what tended to happen other players would go out to the court to try and watch this guy i think partly just to see if you know if it was all hype or, or not and here he is he's getting absolutely hammered and he he, he served and volleyed and played a knee-high volley without bending his knees in the slightest and it was an extraordinary volley winner down the line with the forehand. And Sheng Shaokin just leaned over to me and he said, in my whole life, I will never hit a volley as good as that. <laughs> and Federer didn't win another game in the match. He, 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 it was just that one little momentary bit of brilliance. And, and, and it, but it was an example of what he could do. But more often than not, he was losing matches. There was an, a, a huge number of first-round losses in that sort of spell. I remember him saying to me once after losing to Yuri Novak in, in, in Monte Carlo in, a, in an elevator, he said, why do I always lose the close matches? I said, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, all I can say is just keep, keep going. It'll probably come. You know, that's all I can think <laughs> of to say. And, uh, and, you I hope know, you're still on a commission check for that well, advice, David. Just you know, keep going. I mean, but <laughs> that's he, worked it, out it well. Was just him, he, it was growing pains. He was... He was a teenager he was silly he was he was into music he was into stupid computer games what it was, music was know, he into um anything loud i mean i know that i know that peter lundgren used to take him out in the car in miami they'd get a hire car and stick on acdc and he'd be shouting and singing it at the top of his lungs people don't realize what an exuberant character roger federer is how loud he likes to be he in the in the locker room in in the showers he'd be screaming at the top of his voice doing impersonations of other players and and and, and characters that he might have seen in world wrestling federation and things like that just because he'd got so much energy I don't think I'd ever seen anybody on the circuit with this much energy, just this lust for life. Not, not Did he ever get himself into trouble with impressions of other players? Because that, that's, that's been a risky tactic over the years. Some have pulled it off well, and some haven't. Yeah, he, he, the thing with him is I always felt like he had a glint in his eye. And, and no, I don't think he ever got on the wrong side of people because I think people knew actually, that this kid's all right. I remember him coming into the locker room once where Goran Ivanovic was there and Goran was trying to tell him a few facts of life about what tour life is like. Oh, and, crikey. Yeah, Goran's well, facts of life. And I won't tell you what they were, but 
Roger This is was, a man who describes his dating technique as chip and charge. Yeah, well, so, and, was, and that's a more mature Goran. It was that subject that they were discussing, or certainly Goran was was holding court and telling everybody Crikey. in the locker room uh, how things should be as a tennis player or how he found them. And Roger was just so interested. <laughs> <laughs> this was pre-serious uh, relationship with Merca, actually, that. And uh, I think it was just, again, curiosity at every turn for him. He was just interested. He was soaking it up. Is there an alternative universe, an alternate universe somewhere in which Roger Federer is... Now, I know Grigor Dimitrov could still do it, but in which Roger Federer ended up being what Grigor Dimitrov is now, just never quite made it click. There were some losses where I just left them before he won the 2003 Wimbledon where you're just thinking I, I just don't understand how he's lost that match I don't it doesn't make any sense to me he's the better player he's better than all of these players if you just line them up and compare their ability start of 2003 he played against um I think it was one one Carlos Ferrer or was it Tommy Haas I can't remember in the Australian Open and uh, I think it was it was one Carlos Ferrer and they went five sets and you're just thinking, well, he's, he's surely going to win this match, isn't he? And, and, and he, he didn't win. And then, then the guy's nearly 21. Now, that doesn't sound very old now. But back then it did, because he'd been around for four years, let's not forget. And people were, were really, I'm telling you, people were rolling their eyes when I kept bringing him up in conversation between 99 and even, well, certainly 2001. The Sampras thing made everybody sit up and think, well, hold on, this kid is seriously talented. But even after that, there was the, the, the two years before he actually won his first slam. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened if he'd have got distracted or he'd have spoken to the wrong people? I personally think he he is just a, a, a very switched-on human being, and he knew. He had the intelligence, the commitment, the love of the game to just keep on going and uh, so in answer to your question I think no it wasn't close that that happened but at the time I didn't know do you think he was nervous that it might not happen do you think he was nervous feeling the pressure do you think he thought oh my goodness all these people that I could let down I do I do I think he was I think he was really quite scared of that because how many times can you hear somebody telling you you're going to be this great thing and it's not happening that that I think probably went went with him to bed at night, making him worry and um, and making him doubt. Because until you do it, you don't know you can do it. And that's why the 2003 Wimbledon title for him was such an enormous deal. There is a big relief, I can tell you. Um, people have always said I can do this and that, and I always told them, "Listen, you guys got to wait. You know, I first have to prove it." and you know, I was also doing image treatment, you know, for a while, I thought, you know, and uh, then at now, the last year or so, I just told myself, you know, all that's missing now in my career is just uh, the the results in slams, you know, because everybody's talking about it. I knew it myself. And now that it's true, you know, it's just, uh, oh, it's it's incredible. And I, I actually cannot believe it, you know, for the time being. But, uh, you know, I hope that one day I can look back and know I fulfilled one of my dreams. And a lot of emotion at the end there. Uh, what goes through your head when you're actually holding that trophy finally? No, it's it's just the the best. Um, I was very surprised, you know, maybe almost how big the trophy was. I didn't know what to expect, you know. And it's 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 golden, you know. You don't have golden trophies anywhere else, I think. And um, just to hold it, you know, and to 
to be the guy who won this tournament and to make the dream come true and to kiss the trophy to show the trophy to the fans to your camp you know everybody who's behind you all year long you know it's just it was just way too much emotions for me out there so I don't know how the people took it but I mean I, I loved it so it was great Who was coaching him back then? Well back then it was uh, a combination of two Peters Peter Lundgren uh, who the, the Swedish former Swedish player who's coached a number of other top players as well and a man called Peter Carter an Australian who is sadly no longer with us and who was a real father figure I thought for Roger Federer he is somebody that I met one of the first tournaments that I saw Roger at. Lovely guy, really relaxed, just typical Australian-type character who, who hung out with Darren Cahill, great mates with him. And, and he really, I thought, he was really teaching Roger Federer the pathway to not just being a tennis player, but to being a grown-up, to being a decent human being. I mean, like I say, I thought Federer was a good a good kid and a nice lad, you know, but he was impressionable. He was... He found all sorts of people within tennis interesting, so he would listen, and, he, and I got the sense that he could be badly influenced if he'd have if he'd have listened to the wrong people. Peter Carter just kept him on the straight and narrow, really, and and stopped him getting himself into any trouble. And towards the end of two thousand and two, we received news that Peter Carter had been killed in a car accident. Um, while on safari and i mean it was a it was a really shocking moment for for everybody in the game i mean he was he was not an old man he was i think i would say he'd be early 40s and um federer was devastated i mean he was still a, a, i think he was 20 years old at the time or he, he just maybe turned 21 and uh he very soon after federer won the vienna tournament and he he paid tribute to peter carter in his speech after winning that tournament and he, he he was he was very emotional at the time and i think that that made federer grow up incredibly quickly because i don't think he'd ever really had to to think about mortality before i don't think he'd ever had to consider what that, teenager thinks about no. mortality unless you're forced to yeah, yeah. and and i th- i just think it it stopped him in his tracks and it really it caused him problems for a, for a long time in terms of just dealing with it, dealing with the grief. I mean, this is somebody he he knew well, who he saw every day, who he travelled everywhere with. I mean, a year before, I, I'd gone out to, to Switzerland two days after the 9-11 disaster, and um, I'd gone out and, and, and sat with the the Federer team for, 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 for half a day, basically, to do a feature, a written feature on Roger Federer shortly after his win over Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. And I'd interviewed Peter Lundgren, I'd interviewed Pierre Paganini, who's still the, the fitness trainer of Roger Federer to this day. I'd spent half an hour with Roger himself talking all about his win over Sampras. And, and I'll always remember spending 20, 30 minutes with Peter Carter and just really enjoying the guy's company. And 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 it, it hit Federer incredibly hard. And um, I think that that, though... And this is a feature of Federer as as a boy becoming a man. Is that at every stage of his life, I think whatever has happened, he is he's he's digested what has happened and he's learnt from it and he's he's moved onwards. And I don't think he he will never forget the lessons that that man taught him. Um, and it's a terrible shame that he wasn't alive to see everything that Federer has gone on to do. And it was something 
a very emotional Federer acknowledged straight after that first Wimbledon final win. It's a, it's a big pity he's not here, you know, and I can, cannot share it with him. Um, but I know, you know, he's he's proud of me and uh, and yeah, that we both enjoy it, I guess. And uh, for me, you know, it's just a big thanks to to everybody. Of course, he's included. You know, he's he was always a big help in my in my career. But there's also so many other guys as well. I would like to thank, you know, and uh, I don't. Nobody can take this Wimbledon title away from me. It's just, it's too nice to believe right now. Roger, you did it. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. He kept working with Peter Lundgren. Turned out to be a breakthrough year. Won the Masters Cup later that year, and then he split with Lundgren quite quite unexpectedly. What do you remember? about that well first of all the, the initial Wimbledon title win in 2003 he beat Andy Roddick in the semi-finals in a match where I think Roddick was probably the favorite he was the one that this is the interesting thing because Federer and Roddick were coming up at the same time I was always arguing with my American counterparts at the ATP about who was going to have the better career out of Roddick and, and Federer we were always having this de- debate in in restaurants and uh and, and Federer won that match, and I think that that's when the world discovered th- this guy's talent. He soaked up the serve of Roddick, the game of Roddick, and just his sheer skill won that match for him, really. And then he beat Mark Philippoussis in the final. That was the moment that that the weight lifted off him, and you could see that, that this moment of, oh, I've no longer got to have everybody asking me, Am I ever going to be the next big thing or the next champion? I at least am a champion. You could see that immediately. He went to to, to Gestad where he made that professional debut straight afterwards. I, I went with him. He got presented with a huge cow on the court, a cow called Juliet, the biggest cow I've ever seen in my life. It just walked out onto the tennis court. Yeah, and if anyone knows where Juliet the cow is now, well, the answer's on a postcard there yeah, as well. But anyway, that 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 happened and then... The rest of the year, he I think didn't he, it have a big sort of bell round its it neck. It did, it did. <laughs> a cowbell, probably. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, he he lost relatively early in the U.S. Open to David Nalbanian, and then at the Masters Cup that you reference, he was he was extraordinary. His ability there, he that, he, he destroyed everybody. I think he beat Agassi in the final. That's what is now the ATP World Tour Finals for that's any right. youngsters listening. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it used to be all calls, all sorts of names. But you're right. Then he split with. Peter Lundgren and it was a real shock again to all of us within tennis because they were close for a start but I feel that that was the separation of Roger Federer from boy to man he no longer needed a mate on tour which is kind of I don't want to disrespect Peter Lundgren he was an excellent coach but he was a mate of his he would sit in a car with him turn on the music let him scream his head off on the highways of Miami play silly games get all that out of his system suddenly Roger Federer started to just become a man he didn't need that looking after anymore and I think at this stage I'd I'd also want to draw attention to his wife Mirka because she wasn't just somebody who he had a relationship with romantically. I mean, they met in the Sydney Olympics and she was a former player. They obviously hit it off immediately and, and, and have been together ever since. But at this sort of stage, after he had won Wimbledon for the first time, she became an increasingly significant person in his life logistically as well. She actually started handling all of his media commitment. She was effectively his manager. He stopped working with one of the big management companies and certainly for a year and a half, two years, it was basically Roger Federer and a few people around him. I think his his mum, uh, Lynette, took charge of his foundation. I mean, she was somebody 
who I remember first meeting in Basel at the tournament there, and she was actually looking after all the accreditations there, handing out the badges that, that people used to, to get into various parts of the tournament. She was always so friendly and nice and down-to-earth. You know, this is before Roger Federer became anything of note at all as a tennis player. She was there helping out at that tournament. And his dad, too, I think that they all had a role to play in, effectively, the Roger Federer business. Um, and I think at that stage, what they wanted to do is keep it small and just keep it with people that they could trust. Eventually, they joined one of the big management agencies and, and, and worked with IMG. I, I dare say that Merca probably started to just tire of the sheer number of media requests that Roger Federer was getting. I mean, you know, you, you only have to see him after the Wimbledon final this year in 2017. He had a press conference to do, and 22 one-to-one television and radio interviews. They lasted longer than the final against Marin Cilic. That's an example of the the sort of interest levels in him. And I remember Roger saying to me once, probably in 2001, when I was setting up the interview that, that, that I did in Biel in Switzerland with him, he said, you know, yeah, come to me directly, it's fine for now. But, but eventually, you know all of us were going to have to get used to going through another system because it was getting too much and it wasn't actually fair to, to be texting him or ringing him and asking him for interviews and so forth. And uh, and so he had his, his setup around him with his family. They organised him. They kept him grounded. Eventually he, he joined up with IMG and, and his relationship with Tony Godsick started and uh, Tony has since left IMG and set up their own agency which, uh, which looks after Roger Federer. But... Merkel was an incredible person to have with him throughout all of this, not just as as a girlfriend and, and somebody who would become his wife, but she went everywhere he did and, and, and helped run his life, to be quite honest with you, and and uh, and made him able to be the tennis player that he is without having to worry about anything. And this is when it all gets a bit sort of, it's just the Federer years, isn't it? it it's uh, We will pick out specific moments, but it's just sort of, a decade and more of sheer Federer brilliance, particularly those sort of few years, 2004, probably, would you say, through to about 2008 or nine. Those were the years when I just couldn't relate to Roger Federer and he was just too good. He was a superhuman being that I admired from afar but could not begin to understand. He was just completely impenetrable. You used the phrase mopping up Grand Slams. He made it look too easy. He was just demolishing the field and and yes Rafael Nadal was coming through and he was challenging him and of course Nadal started to win those French Opens but it was still very much only in Paris and then he started to challenge here as well and, and gradually gradually their their rivalry developed but it wasn't really until Nadal beat him here at Wimbledon in 2008 in that final I know they played two previous finals and Nadal had edged closer each time but it wasn't really until that moment that that rivalry caught a light and Roger Federer the dominant force in tennis was put into any jeopardy at all really that's right I would say the only shock in that whole period was when Marit Safin beat him at the Australian Open in the one of the best matches you would ever see in the, in the semi-finals was there a tween or a match point there then? was Roger Federer had match point he hit a between the legs shot which in hindsight he he could have played it a more standard lob and he decided to go for that shot. He ended up losing the match. And, and actually at that time, Peter Lundgren was coaching Marit Safin. I remember going to interview him the day after. And Lundgren said, Marit wants to 
push Roger. He wants to challenge him. That's that's where he is now. But there you see, he, he was able to do it in that microcosm of a couple of weeks. Federer did this week in, week out. What are the moments, positive or negative? I'm sure there are plenty more <laughs> positive than negative, but stand out to you uh, from those sort of bulk, from that sort of decade, I suppose, to 2000, 2004, should we say, through to, well, let's say through to... to 2015, 16, when he took the year. I mean, one moment that's standing out to me is when he cried on Rod Laver's shoulder mm. in the Australian Open final ceremony, the match he played with Rafael Nadal 2009. That was a bit of a, a breakthrough moment for me in my experience of Roger Federer and, and seeing, a, a, seeing a weakness, seeing a chink, yeah. seeing how much he cared and how much it hurt, you know, Formerly, I'd just seen this this bloke that doesn't sweat. You know, how how yeah. can he not sweat? How can... Humanised him, didn't it? Absolutely. And, and I do remember having quite a vociferous debate, stroke argument with you at Queen's, I think in about 2008. And this would have been after he'd beaten Fernando Gonzalez in that Australian Open final and cried on the shoulder of Rod, of Rod Laver. And you were saying to me, you were saying this to me, I can't relate to Roger Federer because of his his. Am, am I conflating two moments? Yeah, there was another one. The 2009 was one... Was when he said, it's killing me in yeah, the speech. when, when he'd been was beaten when he by lost. Nadal. That's the moment. So, that, so it was the previous year when he had won that he cried on the shoulder that's correct. of Rod Laver. And then the following year when he lost to Nadal in that final was when he said, yeah. it's killing me. In and the I, speech and I got quite, I got quite angry at you the did. way you were dismissing Roger Federer, the human being, as if he doesn't feel things, as if he doesn't go through the standard human emotions that we do, because he's so great, and you couldn't relate to him. And without wishing to say to you, well, hold on a minute, I know the bloke, and I did when he was sixteen, so you need to shut up. I tried to give you tangible examples that everybody knew of. Of, of why you were wrong. And I think that that was a perfect example. Rod Laver, to him, was what he is to so many others. And he was so moved to have his presence at, at, a, at, a, at a big moment in his life that he, that he, he, he cracked up emotionally on the court. And I, I mean, I, you know, I defy anybody to see that without feeling a twinge of emotion themselves. And, but you, the Nadal one... We talk about moments of when maybe you might have fallen out of love with the sport, and I certainly don't think he did. But I think that Nadal beating him there and beating him at Wimbledon, those are the moments that must have caused Roger Federer doubt for the first time in his career. Because this guy, he just couldn't keep him off. He just kept on coming. And it wasn't clay. It was grass. It was hard courts. That must have, been, that must have shaken Roger Federer to the core. How much doubt do you think he had that he, for for a time there, that he would ever complete the career Grand Slam and would ever win the French Open? Well, I think he must have had doubt in as much as, to this day, he's never beaten Rafael Nadal on clay at the French Open. And he has Robin Soderling to thank, to be quite honest, for removing Rafael Nadal from his path that year. Look... Federer would have had multiple French Open titles if it wasn't for Rafael Nadal because he is a truly great clay court player as well as all the other things he does well. But what Nadal has done and what Djokovic has done as well and, and to a very small extent, Andy Murray, they've made Roger Federer a better player because if you go back to those 
early years, the years when I saw him as a teenager and in 2000, he had all these flowery, extravagant shots, but he was just faffing around on the baseline, basically, just showing everybody how clever he was. He wasn't, there was no game plan. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't taking time away. All the things that he does now to such devastating effect. And then he got into the mid-2000s and his sheer brilliance and fitness and athleticism and cleverness on the court and temperament were beating people and he was winning multiple Grand Slam titles because Andy Roddick and Leighton Hewitt just weren't as good as him. It's as simple as that. Then Nadal came along and put a pressure on him that he's just he's never had before and he's, ne- and he, he's never had it since to quite that degree. I think Djokovic has had that whole hold over him between sort of 2014 and 2016 as well. But he slightly had to he's had to reinvent himself certainly in in his in his early to mid 30s can you think of any moments when it's looked at all like he's not been in love with the sport i felt he was and i think many people felt that he was finished around 2013 five live at wimbledon as roger federer hangs by a thread in the second round. Still match point against him. Serves down the centre. Now backhand down the line. Stokowski's equal to it. Goes cross court with his forehand. Moves to his right. Hits a forehand down the centre. Federer stands up tall and hits his backhand with loop and topspin. Then a forehand cross court swipe by Federer. But he's on the back foot here. Slices the backhand and drifts it over the net. And Stokowski slices in kind. Backhand is yeah, yeah, And Stokowski falls to his back. He's beaten the seven time Wimbledon champion in the second round. 7 6. 7 5. 7 6. 116 in the world. He's played like a world number one tonight. Roger Federer puts his backs on his shoulders. Beaten before the quarter-final stage at Wimbledon for the first time in 11 years. And listen to this as he departs. Head bowed, Roger Federer. But he remembers where he is. And he waves. And he puts his thumb up. But he is a disconsolate figure as he departs centre court. When he lost to Tommy Robredo in the fourth round of the US Open, I think it was, and, and there were a number of losses around there. I was looking at the, the head-to-head record he had with Thomas Burdett between 2010 and 2013, and he had a losing record. He won, he, he won three matches out of eight against Thomas Burdick, who he's beaten eight times in a row now. I think he was going... He was, his body wasn't playing ball. He was getting back problems. He, he was losing matches he would never have lost before and and i think I, i'm not saying that he thought it was finished because he clearly didn't he just kept the belief that if he played the way he can he could still be competitive and still be great but i just they were they were they were racking up and i know many federal fans listening to this will be saying well i didn't lose faith in him and and i believe them because a lot of people just frankly will will always believe in him but from the sidelines he looked, he looked a little slower to me, which makes his comeback all the more extraordinary. If we were to go back two years, one of the best performances that I've ever seen was Federer beating Murray in the semi-finals at Wimbledon. 30-40, Andy Murray on serve yet again. And he could be two sets to love down in the second, but he serves into the net. And Federer just wipes his brow and looks at the strings of his racket and thinks, yeah, this is my wand, this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to cast a spell on you now, and I'm going to win this set. He hits his forehand down the centre, moves to his left, slices his backhand just over the net. This is set point Federer. Hits his forehand cross court. Murray will reach it, but he will he hit the line? He will. Now Murray will have to go all over to the other side and hit the backhand cross court. It's a little chip down the line from Federer. He's just sending Murray side to side. Forehand down the line from Federer now. Murray's equal to it, though. He now has a forehand to hit. Can he stretch Federer? Well, Federer's going to attack, and Murray's on the defence, and Federer will put the forehand volley away. And Roger Federer, after an extraordinary set of tennis, takes a two sets to love lead against Andy Murray, who's got to do it the hard way now. What a set of tennis from Roger Federer. Federer, just wonder if two sets to love. Murray can play any better than this. I thought Murray played a really good match and got beaten in straight sets. Thing is, next day or two days later. Djokovic beat Federer and I think that that sometimes gets lost in that in that storytelling and and certainly for that couple of years period Djokovic was too much for him he was just he just had an answer for everything it's 30-40 this is break point for Roger Federer who spins his racket in his hands at the far end and looks at the ball and hits it with a forehand and slightly mishits but finds the sideline now a forehand cross court that goes with a really acute angle an explosive forehand by Djokovic both players trading toe to toe the backhand cross court by Federer now backhand cross court from Djokovic who winds up into a forehand break point down oh that's brilliant from Djokovic somehow scooped out by Federer now another big high forehand from Djokovic down the line Federer's got it back gone cross court and he's set up a chance here Federer he's got down the line somehow Djokovic gets it back and they're back into a baseline challenge rallies once more and now a forehand down the line from Djokovic break point down hits his backhand cross court Federer winds up into a backhand cross court then clips one down the line with a forehand but why how has Djokovic won that point the greatest of all time debate has been around for a long time. Lots of people roll their eyes. I know Pat Cash in particular is particularly not a fan of it. And I completely, I think all the reasons that people shy away from the debate are completely valid. But do you think just in this last year, this last six months, the longevity he's shown in the game, what he's doing now at the age of 35, nearly 36, does that pretty much seal it as him being the greatest male player of all time? I think he's the greatest tennis player that I've ever seen wield a racket, certainly male tennis player. I think Serena Williams as a on the women's side it is it has achieved similar things, maybe even greater things, but in terms of sheer racket ability and what he can do on a tennis court, I've never seen anything like Roger Federer. The way he moves, the what he can do. But then I look at what Nadal has done to him over the years and not just on clay. And the head-to-head between the two of them. And I think that has casted serious doubts over that over the years. The last six months does make me feel that he's pulled away again. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. As great as Nadal was in winning the French Open... I do feel that those wins that Roger Federer had over him in those couple of tournaments at the start of 2017, where he just—I mean, okay, the, it was a five-setter, and it was—it was all about guts and glory in that in that final set in in Australia. But the way he just dismissed him in those other matches, it's like he's cracked the code. Now we'll, we'll find out in the years to come. Isn't it great that they're both back at the top of the game again? Hopefully, we'll have more Grand Slam finals between the two, and we can probably see this out. But the numbers tell you everything. In 2010, I interviewed Roger Federer in Toronto and he, he'd got 16 Grand Slam titles at the time. And I wanted to see if he thought he could make 20 in whatever was left of his career. If I said to you you could play another five years and win three more Grand Slams, would, yeah. would you take that? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I would want to win more. Um, I, I I just believe, obviously, having won you know, three Grand Slams... Uh, Per season, I think two or three times. I don't even remember, but or and a, and a few times also two per year is something that's very doable for me. And you know, obviously, at times I was one set away or two sets away from winning the calendar Grand Slam. He's nearly there, you know, and that. But he wasn't for a long time. For, no, for a long for a long time, that gamble would have been one that wasn't paying off for him. Mm. For me to be now doing it, that hypothetical as, gamble. I mean, to turn that down. Yeah, I mean, for me, to, to the fact that he's now underlining it all at the age that he is and in the way he is, having turned his game upside down to some degree, to, to change, he's, he's a different player. He's, I, I find extraordinary. And so, yeah, as a, to me, he's the greatest tennis player of all time, male tennis player. But, but I didn't see Rod Laver. He did, it was a different time. I completely get what Pat Cash is saying. Richard Evans always says to me, you should have seen Lou Hode. It's not a fair debate in that way. I can only go on what I've seen and the numbers 
And for me, Federer is the greatest. And also, I, I think greatest of all time debate or not, I think what you can say is in the era that we're in with television and radio and social media and everything that we have, all the ways we have to, to bring sport to people's attention, I do think he's the greatest ambassador for for tennis that our sport has ever had. I mean, in terms of people sitting up and taking notice of tennis, Roger Federer makes people do that in a way that I've never seen before. And I'm very grateful to him for that as somebody who cares so much and makes a living out of trying to make other people care about tennis. I'm, I feel sort of very grateful to him for that in a, in a strange way. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I think both you and I are at times slightly tired of just how much um, people drool over him. Now, and I'm not trying to be unkind because, look, you know, the, the, he has huge fans, but I think within our, within our circles, within the media, sometimes it's, I think it's sometimes a bit too much. And I think even he would probably be a little bit uncomfortable with it. But he has been an incredible force for good in the sport. He has put it on the map. He's made people from outside the sport in other sports care about it. He's made film stars care about it. He's made politicians care about tennis. People follow Roger Federer and want to want to be around him, near him, see him. It's it's incredible what what an impact he's had on people. Um, and. Yeah, that is good news for tennis. I've just I've just been having a conversation with somebody on on BBC Radio Five Live about Roger Federer's comeback in in 2017, and the thing is, he loves the sport in a way that no other player I've ever seen loves the sport. He loves hitting the tennis ball. He loves the practice sessions. He loves the conversations in the locker room. He even loves the airports. He even loves talking to us. He loves airports. He no loves one it. loves airports. Yeah, I'm telling you, he loves the whole thing. He cannot believe his luck. If he wasn't getting paid gazillions of dollars, he would still want to do it. I mean, I've never, ever seen him looking like he would really rather be doing something else. So is he one of those, and, and we've both worked on the Champions Tour, and we've seen players deal with retirement differently and, and struggle with retirement a lot. It may yet be a while away. He certainly hopes it's a while away. Is he somebody you think that could stare into a bit of a the proverbial black hole upon retirement? No, I, not at all. He's not the But if kind. he loves it that much... But he'll stay then. in it. He, he, he won't be able to play it at a championship level anymore it's at a certain age I mean I don't know what that age will be Jeff Tarango was saying to me the other day he'll be playing brilliant tennis at 65 because of the way he hits the ball and the way he moves I can, I can believe it but at some point he will decide that his game doesn't match up anymore and he's going to take losses that he doesn't want to take and he, trying to decide when to stop is going to be a, a really interesting one for Roger Federer. He doesn't look worried about it to me. I think he will just decide when when he's when he's decided, and uh, and he'll talk to his wife and all the rest of it. But I think he will do so many different things coach? in his life. Will he coach? Maybe, maybe. I think commentate. I think he could do all sorts of things and take great pleasure from it within the sport. But he'll still want to play. I just think he won't join a structure. He will create the structure people come out to watch this guy you don't need an event you just need to have him it's it's extraordinary what i've also never seen anybody create a reaction within people the way he does borg was had a mystique about him but federer there's a there's something around him there's this force field of 
of joy that that follows him everywhere he goes and and people just tap into it maybe he'll end up a tennis dad maybe that's what he'll do in retirement well imagine how He's good got those kids four are chances four ch- four four chances a, a, a kid a couple of cracking a... doubles teams he's got <laughs> yeah. mixed doubles but um yeah uh, look he, he's so interested in the world that his choices are going to be endless really um i spoke a few days ago about andy murray and the pressure on him the responsibility that he carries only in as much as these people and roger federer more than anybody has an ability to do thing, to do good things, to, to impact to, people's lives, yes, to impact people's lives in a really positive way. I mean, it's it's a responsibility and a pressure at the same time because you you can't please everybody. There's so many people who who would love to to get near to you or to to be impacted by you, but he will have choices to make because he can be a huge force for good in a number of ways in his life. You're confident we'll be able to follow him for a few more years to come. Yeah, as I, he's not tiring of it. He's loving it. The the issue is his body, and and I've given up writing the guy off. I mean, I've, I've written it. We've all written him off. I have in the I past. Have. In twenty thirteen, I, I couldn't see how he could ever do this again. Um, when he had his six months off at the end of twenty sixteen, you're thinking, well. You, how how can you do that? How can you do that and come back and be competitive straight away? He won the Australian Open. It's absurd. So I've given up writing him off, and long may it continue because it's 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 just a treat to behold, really. Roger Federer, fifteen forty seven times champion on this Thank court, you. two sets to one behind, three one behind. But write him off at your peril. 15.40 he has. Drifter back and onto the baseline. Forehand hit cross sport by Djokovic. Big forehand cross court winner! Roger Federer is back in it! It is a treat. It's a cliche, but we have to enjoy him while he's still around. And we hope that's still for a very long time. He'll continue to, in David Law's words, take our breath away. That was, that was your non-writing him off, writing him off, wasn't it? You didn't want to predict that he would actually win more Grand well, Slam titles, so you said he will take our breath away I think, I think one last the, the time. One thing He's that, done that. One thing that sums him up for me, which is why I, probably why I said that, is because I've still never come across any tennis player, man or woman, who has made me feel the way I do when he's on top of his game. He had has an ability to just make me think that I'm not watching real life. And so who am I to say that that he can't? He 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 works in a different way to to the rest of human nature. It's it's in in terms of sport. I've never seen anything like it. Nor me. So stick at it, Roger. The tennis podcast is enjoying your work and we hope you've enjoyed this Roger Federer special. I can't believe it's taken us five and a bit years. I've heard most of David's stories before and I still found it completely gripping just to get an insight like that into a man that, you know, we've all known and has been part of our tennis watching lives for so long. So thank you, David. Thank you for listening. We're having a week off next week, but then things ramp up again with the US hard court swing. There's Washington, there's Montreal, there's Toronto, there's Cincinnati, and then there's, of course, the US Open where we bring you more 
daily podcast. So plenty of tennis podcasts to come. But one week off for us and then we will be back. So stick with us. We've been the Tennis Podcast in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 